was a family business. And he just said to me one day, if you ever want to get in the movie business, give me a call. I didn't know much about his business. And I genuinely just wanted to get out of Orange County. Uh, I had nothing. You're listening to Hawk Talk, a podcast all about the origin stories of the most interesting people in the world. Today, you know our guests as famous athletes, authors, and entrepreneurs. But there's so much more to this story. Let's get into today's interview with your host, Eric Huber. All right. You're listening to Hawk Talk. I'm here today with Joe Drake. How are you? I'm great, Eric. How are you doing? I'm doing well. So got to start it out. I assume as like a two-year-old, you started producing your the whole situation in the household, making sure everybody was doing their jobs, getting the film ready. Like, how, how did it all start? Where, where were you born? Let's start there. It wasn't like that at all. <laughs> I was a kid like everybody else. I was born in Buffalo, New York. Yeah. We left there when I was five or six years old. My dad got drafted into the army. Oh, wow as a doctor and he had a choice he could go to korea for two years without his family or hawaii for three with his family so he moved to hawaii for three years i remember a little bit about it like he used to go to school in bare feet that kind of stuff That's was really basic cool. yeah and then we when we got out of the service we moved to costa mesa california down in orange county nice and was and your dad your dad was a doctor prior to the army yeah yeah got he it. was a urologist got it he was a urologist and so i remember those years fondly and then we came to uh we moved to Orange County, a place called Costa Mesa, lived on yep. Joppa Drive, and I yeah. uh, have seven brothers and sisters, so really wow. big family. And where do you sit in that? I'm the oldest male. I have one older sister. Got it. I have one older sister. Older sister. Yeah. So, no, I was not an organizer. I was a kid like everybody else, just kind of creating havoc around the house and having yep. a good time. We had a very, we talk about this a lot now because I've got kids that are now teenagers, but you know, my parents were amazing parents, but the level of involvement was if you're not bleeding and you're not hungry, leave them alone, right? So yeah. it was just a different, like the, the today we hover around folks, right? Yeah. And so we were just kind of a wild group of cats having fun. That's awesome. And so growing in Costa Mesa, growing up in Costa Mesa, what were you into? What kind of things did you gravitate towards? I guess you um, moved there when you were eight. Is that do I have the time? Yeah, there? like I did all the usual stuff. My dad had me in baseball. I was terrible. I was terrible. <laughs> I, I can play it. Ball player, riding bikes, skateboards, all the silly stuff. I didn't really kind of get into my own thing till I got into high school. I started to swim and I started to play water polo and got very comfortable in the water and then ended up lifeguarding in the summers in Newport Beach. And so I guess back in those days, I was very much, you know, playing water polo, swimming, a little bit of surfing, lifeguarding, kind of living that classic California life. I was going to ask. Yep. You got the SoCal life. Totally. And so, what like growing up i'm curious did you have like even in high school like aspirations like this is what i think i want to be did anything come up along the way not at all <laughs> no it's, and it's funny because a lot of the people in the business are people who've always aspired to the business not all of them but a lot yeah. of them at some point in time were like i want to be in the movie business and they were kind of moving on that path yeah i had zero direction i was uh i was really into water polo in high school yeah i was really into swimming I was into girls, you know, the, the stuff that you yeah. are in high school, right? And yeah. I didn't have any aspiration other than to have fun. I wasn't a very good student. And I think in my senior year, I did okay in school, but without a lot of effort. Yeah. You know, I wasn't one of those heavy students. I was more like a athlete, you know, I don't know what, I was one of those guys, whatever that is. <laughs> I right? gotcha. Back yeah. in those days, I was part of that club. Yeah. And, and then it was time to go to college. Yep. And I, um, you know, it's very unlike back then, it's very unlike like it is today, all the competition for college, you kind of applied, you didn't go on college visits. I remember I applied to Boulder, yep. I got in, 
I went to Boulder for a year and then I came back and played water polo at Irvine for a couple of years and then uh, finished up at Fullerton kind of in a commute, you know, commuter school while I was, I started to work actually my last year in college. And what did you major in? What'd you go to college for? I ultimately had a bachelor's in, I think it was called like real estate finance or something. Got it. It was, it was basically a piece of paper. I didn't really yeah. major in much of anything, to yeah. be honest with you. I just got the paper. All right. So the clarity still hadn't come. You were just enjoying college, playing water polo. Not at all. I was, oh. I was enjoying college. I was living at the beach with some friends. Yeah. I wasn't really serious about life. I did when I was a... My father had agreed to pay for four years of college for each one of us. And when I was the end of my sophomore year, the beginning of my junior year, I got really bad grades. And I, I will never forget it. I didn't want to have to explain it to my dad again. And so I got in the car and I drove over to the house and I sat in front of him and I said, I'm going to pay for my college from now on. I had no plan to do that or how to do that. But I just said, I'm going to pay for college because I don't want to talk to you anymore about this. I really sucked in school. It was bad. You're not going to be happy, but it's not your problem anymore. And that day, from that day on, I, I had to pay for everything for myself. Yeah. And I would say that was a big turning point because I immediately went way in debt. <laughs> I had yeah. to kind of figure out how to continually pay enormous credit cards and loans and the like. And so while I was in college, I started to work. And then I got my first real job at a place called Village Investments during my, the end of my junior year in college. So I was, I was kind of like going to school half-heartedly and working. Uh, there's a gentleman named Phil McNamee who owns a ton of real estate in Orange County, and he was buying apartment buildings and syndicating them in a very unique way. And I was, I like to say, I was like, you know, on his acquisition team, helping him buy buildings. I basically drove around, took pictures of buildings and then yeah. filled in boxes. And, you know, I really wasn't doing a lot of high level thinking, but um, that was my first job. And it was during my last year and a half of college. Got it. And so when you graduate, you stick with it or what ended up happening from there? I stick with it for a couple of years. Okay. I'm, not, I'm not enjoying it. It was kind of the path of least resistance. Yeah. Again, still directionless. Yeah. It was the path of least, least resistance. I didn't like it much. A few years later, a buddy of mine started a mortgage company, which today is probably one of the biggest mortgage companies in all Orange County, and uh-huh. asked me if I wanted to come over there. I went over there. I started making really good money. Uh-huh. I still hated it. And uh, what, what was it because they paid you or were you doing mortgage sales? What I was just doing, yeah, I was a mortgage broker and yeah. home loans. I mean, yeah. the most the simplest thing on planet Earth, only at that time, you could you could write a lot of business fast if you hustled. Right. And after about a year of it, it's a lot of incoming business because you've established your network. Yeah. And, you know, it's pretty repetitive, though. Yeah. You know, the, it's pretty yeah. just packaging a loan and finding a lender. It's, it's sort of mechanical at some point. Doesn't really challenge the brain a whole lot, but I was good at it. And yeah. I was making really I was making really good money on a relative basis. And so, yeah. it was, you know, like that part of it. But again, still just totally unfulfilled, hated the job. And where do you think that came from, like that drive side of you? Because it sounds like, you know, in high school, college, you, for a while, you kind of chilled. Was it just that, oh, I've got to cover myself now? And I need well, to I, Look, I actually think it was water polo. I, uh, yeah. I played, um, I was all through 
grammar school and and middle school, I was the guy kind of sitting on the steps while the kids were playing basketball. I just didn't fancy myself an athlete. And when yep. I got to high school, I really took to the water. I really took to water polo. I don't know what the switch was in my head, but I'd get up very early in the morning, make myself breakfast, get on my bike, ride, you know, a mile and a half to school, get in the pool before school. I was just, I became driven by that thing and I got really good. And I, I kind of, I, I like to think of it as like, I would, I learned like what the edge was and then how to push past the edge to get better and to do things. And so I had a, I had a really successful four years playing water polo and felt, you know, as a kid felt strong because I was in shape and all that kind of stuff. And so I would say that that gear is something that I've drawn on. Um, Just understanding the, understanding the ability, your capability if you just want to push yep i don't know if that makes sense but yeah no you're you're kind of that your limitations were far beyond what you'd normally accept them to be at kind of thing right that's right makes sense awesome all right so you're in mortgage lending you get a little you're not having fun what let me know what happens next so what happens is i end up doing two home loans Uh for a gentleman in los angeles i don't know how he found me but we got connected somehow gentleman named ken badish who had a movie company that was um, really taking advantage of the tail end of the mom and pop VHS boom. And what I mean by that, this was way back when, I'm not even sure you were born then, Eric, but (laughs) way back when there were mom and pop video stores opening up daily across the country. You had the classic (laughs) supply demand imbalance where there just weren't enough movies to fill this new demand of people running to video stores. He was buying movies and releasing them in a handful of Midwestern states they would then be qualified as theatrical releases. And then he would go and monetize them in home entertainment and video and downstream. And he was really arbitraging the market very successfully. Um, There were 10, 11 people working there. It was a family business. And he just said to me one day, if you ever want to get in the movie business, give me a call. I didn't know much about his business. And I genuinely just wanted to get out of Orange County. Uh, I had nothing. I love Orange County. It just was, you know what I mean? It was just like enough in there. Yeah. It was something different. The plan wasn't any more serious than that. And I gave him a call, took a probably 70% pay cut. Wow. Went up and got a smelly studio apartment over near UCLA and started working for him. And I don't know what it was because there's I mean, I'm still not sure there's any glamour in the movie business. I think it's largely (laughs) misperceived, but there was definitely no glamour in the business that I was in and what I was doing, but I loved it. I don't know why, but I worked a lot. And And why do you think, I know you can say you don't know why, but what, what do you think drew you to it that you were passionate about it? I mean, I'm, I'm just curious about I do all kinds of things. I chase all kinds of passions because I just have a I just have a curious nature. Mm-hmm. And I think the learning curve was extraordinarily steep. It was a it was something I knew literally nothing about. And very quickly he would say, Look, we need to buy some movies. Go screen these movies and give me an evaluation. I have no idea how to value a movie. Uh, yeah. And I don't mean like is it good or bad, but how do you look at a 90-minute piece of content? and break down its values in theatrical, home entertainment, international sales, you got to start putting, you got to start marrying business concept to a creative piece of material, right? And I didn't know what I was doing, but he allowed me to learn on the job. 
And he was an excellent, excellent teacher. He was a great negotiator. I'd never really negotiated anything in my life. And so we, and yet he needed someone that had a bit of a business brain, which I, and and a sales brain. I do have selling as something that comes natural to me. Mm -hmm. And so I just got to learn on the job. I guess it was because there was, I had total access. I'd sit there at night and read contracts. I know that sounds boring, but when you start when you start digging into the contracts, you can see exactly how the business works, right? What it costs to buy something, what revenue streams come out of it, how that's accounted for. It. I'd ask him lots of questions. So, so I'm curious on that one because I noticed this with most people is they don't read the contracts, they don't even take the time to understand. And once you do, you realize these are written by people and they're actually not as complicated as you think once you read a contract. But so many, I guess, ninety five percent of the country don't even open that for the first time. So what do you think was about you that went, I'm going to go understand this and take that leap into something that may not be core to your job, but you wanted to understand it anyways, just curiosity. So, uh, yeah. And I guess, you know, when I, we do intern nights a couple of times a year. And one of the questions that always comes, I am getting to a point here. I know I'm sounding like I'm going off track, but, and one of the questions that always comes is if you give me any advice, what would it be? And it sounds so pat, you've heard it a thousand times, but it's true which is your job when you're young is to find the thing that you're excited about and passionate about. And then the rest of it will work out. And so I didn't, I didn't want to be in the movie business. I didn't know that. And the truth is it could have been another business that offered me that kind of scope of learning and business and some creative pursuits didn't have to be movies, but I found a place where I just couldn't get enough. And so I was in the right place. And I think everybody's got to kind of find that place for themselves. And the reason I say that is because there are, when you look at successful people, most of them early in their career just outworked everybody, but for them, it wasn't work. They were just doing this thing that they were super excited and interested about. And people who have work ethic can't actually outwork a curious, interested person. Yeah, agreed. (laughs) Right? And so, so the answer was, I had just found a place that I was devouring information because I was interested and excited about it. I was learning. And the thing about my first six years in the business with Ken was it just kind of went from one experience to another of learning. So I was buying movies for him. He then decided he wanted to make some movies. And it was a business exercise. He wasn't trying to, you know, reinvent creativity. He just, there was a, there was a business to arbitrage. And he made, he greenlit this movie called Ski School. First movie I ever had a credit on. And it was a classic, like, you know, go to the jacuzzi, go to the party, go to the slopes and race, kind of by the numbers, old fashioned movie in those days. And figured out how to finance it between a couple of pieces of from Canada and some whatever. And so we, we greenlit this movie went and made this movie and tried to sell it to a foreign sales company to go represent us internationally and couldn't get enough money for it. And so again, I've probably been in the business three years at this point, packed up our film cans, literally flew to a film market in Milan, opened up an office and started selling international with no experience. (laughs) That's awesome. Making that movie, he actually took it away from the producer because the producer had kind of screwed some things up, up in Canada and handed me like, I forget, like $100,000 in the middle of August and said, you need to go finish the movie. Not as a director, go get a bunch of people and shoot yeah. this scene that I had to find snow in Oregon in the middle of summer and all <laughs> kinds of problems to solve. But it was- Mount Hood has it, doesn't it? I think I remember. Mount Hood does. Yeah. That's where there I was, go. right? There you and go. So, so, but the point is like, I somehow found myself in a position where 
I got to touch every aspect of the film business, not the sexy, big, real film business. We were making Ski School, not yeah. Fast and Furious, right? Yeah. But, but all of the ins and out of the movie business, I got to touch and play in and learn and learn by trying. Yeah. I came out of that first experience in Milan with a real passion for the international side of the business and ended up in the last three years working with him, building him an international sales company where we would sell other people's films for him and got very profitable, got pretty good at it. So I guess the answer to your question is I was just in a place where I got to stay on an extraordinarily steep learning curve. And at that moment in my life, and it was exciting stuff. And at that moment in my life, I guess I was ready for that, you know? Yeah. Makes sense. And so did you get to the point, like, what caused you to leave? Was it that that learning curve started to slow or did you just decide it was time? A bunch of stuff. Uh, business got tougher. He was trying to figure out where his business was going. I think we had an enormous amount of loyal to each other. Opportunities started to come my way. Uh -huh. And there was just sort of a natural moment where yeah. there was an opportunity that came up that was exciting. The truth is, I think he was probably at a place where he's like, I don't know if I can keep paying this guy, right? Like, it was, I think it was just one of those natural moments. We remain good friends today. We stay in touch, try to help each other periodically and connect once in a while. He's sort of left. He's not entirely left the business, but he's not deeply in the business anymore. And so there was just a natural moment for both of us. Got it. And what was that opportunity that arose? So there's a there was a company um, called Reicher Entertainment. A gentleman named Keith Samples had convinced the Cox sisters of Cox Communications to give him nearly a billion dollars to build a studio. That's a, that's a whole different story. I don't really understand how he pulled that off, but he did. And he immediately started making a ton of movies and a ton of TV shows. Um, there was a woman named Megan Kimberly running his international operation and they need someone to come in and run the, the feature sales side of the business. They had a lot more content than what I had handled in the past. They were making big, you know, all kinds of movies, um, big studio movies and some more art house films, much yep. higher volume of content being distributed by major studios, not something that I'd been doing before. And so they hired uh, me to come run their international business to monetize the content they were making. Got it. And was that exciting because you'd get to work with a bigger base? Like what drew you to that job? I mean, it was time for the next thing. Yeah. Um, much bigger films, much higher volume of films. I, I've never actually worked. Uh, I, at that point, I'd never worked for a major studio. I kind of always tended to be in the sort of opportunistic independent space. This was a giant independent company. Yeah. And so we, it was an opportunity just to work with a lot more content go to the next level, learn a lot more about how studio movies, because even though we were an independent company, all of our movies were going to be released, whether it was through Paramount or Universal, a bunch of major studios domestically here in the US. That has a whole bunch of implications for their values internationally. Um, it was an opportunity to really understand how studios work with independent producers, not something we'd done at the other company. So again, a bigger stage, another big learning curve. And I had at that point become pretty well established and knew the international business well. So I could also bring a lot of value to them. Yep. It was just sort of the natural yes. progression. Got it. And how did that go? How was the transition? It was everything you'd expect. Really great. And there, it was really gnarly at times. There wasn't that company as a company, not what we were doing in the international business, didn't have a great business plan. They were just green lighting movies without a lot of regard for market value, in my view. And yet my job was to sell them. So we did a, it, in, in terms of personal career growth, 
you know, I was selling a lot more film for a lot more money than I ever had. I had was developing a deeper base of more important relationships. Yeah. I learned a lot about how to work with studios and what the studio demand was. Mm-hmm. And so for me, it was great. At the same time, the company was not very successful. Yeah, They were not having a ton of success in the theatrical marketplace. They were not having a ton of financial success um, with their content. And after four years, the writing was on the wall. Yeah, My team and I, I think, did a great job of monetizing what we had. Yep. But ultimately, the overall business was not in great shape. And so after after about four years, it was time to figure out the next thing. And did you leave with something else to land on or did you just go? Yeah. Um, you uh, a really good, a really good friend of mine, a guy named Jeff Sackman, was one of the first was at a company was at Lionsgate, where I am now. But it was the yep. formation of Lionsgate pre me, uh-huh. a gentleman named Frank Justra had brought capital to bear and acquired a small company called Cinepix Film Properties. And I believe he bought Peter Goober's television company, or maybe that happened after. I'm not exactly sure how Lionsgate formed. And Jeff, who I'd known for years, he was actually, he had actually been involved in Ski School, the first movie as a Canadian distributor, uh, was running that company and asked me to come in and build their international business. They had a small business, a small international business run by a woman named Marie uh, Claire Poulan, who up in Montreal, and we moved the international business to LA and started to ramp up from there. So I joined Jeff to kind of help grow Lionsgate's platform. At that point, it was a much smaller company than it is today. Yeah. Well, that's that's good. <laughs> that's a good way to go. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so I know there were, I know some of the story there, but would love to dive into. So you were there running international. How did things start to progress at Lionsgate? It sounds like you got more and more involved in the overall business too. Yeah. So I've been in and out of Lionsgate three times now. So yeah. I, you know, I started up international sales company. Lionsgate was a pretty small company at that point on a relative basis, buying movies, making movies, you know, fairly low budget films by and large. Uh-huh. It was more of a, I would describe it as, although it had creative aspirations, it was more of a dealer in film. Yeah. Um, Got it. Small theatrical company. We made movies like American Psycho and a bunch of movies that we did okay yeah. with. They were, you know, they're, they, they sort of made their mark. I started to, I think it was in like, God, when was it? 2001 two, or late 2000, 2001, after running that foreign sales company, doing a bunch of good work with people who I remained very close to there at the company, John Feltheimer and Michael Burns had bought a stake in the company with some other investors. John still is the CEO of the organization. Michael is the vice chair. They'd come in and were doing their thing. And it was, uh, my contract was coming up in about a year. And at that point, I had felt like I saw a opportunity in the market at large uh, that was not being filled. I'd become a little disenchanted with working there. Nobody's probably my own ego. I had thought that I knew everything one needed to know about the movie business, which I would later learn. I didn't know everything there was to know, had a little bit of an ego, but had an idea for a business. And so I built Lionsgate's international business for three years And then in 2001, decided not to renew my contract and to start a company Mm -hmm. that at the time was called Senator. We were financed by a German distribution company that had just gone public in Germany and their valuation went from probably a few million dollars to, I don't know, half a billion dollars because the new market was 
it was a bit of a stock bubble, right? There were these yeah. crazy valuations happening. So they financed the my first company that I started in 2001. That was going to be an international sales company, a production company, a development company, and a finance company in the motion picture space. I had an idea of, you know, when I started that company, I thought I understood a demand that wasn't being filled in the market. And I thought I had a plan on how to get to fulfilling that demand. Yep. I was right about the demand. I had no clue how to get there, it turns out, right? <laughs> so, and yet there's nothing like trial by fire, right? So, because I did know a lot about the business side of the movie business. It turns out I didn't know a whole lot about the creative side of the movie business. Got it. And so I started that company in 2001 and went about the process of trying to fill that demand and figure out what it was going to take to get there. Got it. And so through that process, did you end up figuring out the creative side or what ended up happening? With I figured out how to operate in it. I would say yeah. that, look, you've built a business and yep. uh, you've been very, very successful. And when I think one of the things that I quickly understood or tried to understand is what I knew and what I was great at and what I didn't know and what I wasn't great at and how to, how to bring those. If we were going to be successful, I needed all of the pieces to connect all the dots to get from an idea, and I don't mean idea of the business, I mean like the, uh, a movie idea, Yeah, and take that all the way to fruition. And that required a bunch of pieces, particularly on the creative side that I did not have expertise at, nor did I probably value appropriately when I started the company, right? Sure. And so yep. we were profitable pretty quick because I was, I knew enough about the international business that I could get a lot of other people's content and sell it and make money. Yeah, we weren't attracting great content that was going to grow a robust business and become important in the motion picture space. Yeah, to to great creators, and that's really where you need to be in order to build a real business in the movie space. And so uh, we had a nice little business going, but I had to figure out how to fill that creative void, and I started looking for a creative partner, uh -huh. um, someone who was who really understood that side of the business and and could fill that void and interviewed a lot of people and struggled to find anybody that I understood. It wasn't that they weren't good. I just didn't even know quite how to evaluate and talk to those folks. And yep. there was a gentleman named Nathan Kahane who was also employed by our parent company through another deal they had that they were shutting. Uh -huh. and Nathan was a creative executive for that company and officing with us. And he and I went out to lunch one day because he was giving me names of people to try to hire. And we just spent some time talking to each other and kind of looked at each other and said, hey, you want to give this a go? And so Nathan became the creative executive at that company. And I describe our relationship for the first six months to people looking at it. It looked like we were at war with each other all the time. <laughs> um, Which happens a lot with business and creative. But but what was interesting is it's not actually what was happening. It just looked yeah. like that, right? Yeah. He he literally had had no business training whatsoever. Yeah. I had had no creative training whatsoever. No. He wanted to make movies and I wanted to make movies. He would bring me a script that he said, we should green light this movie. And I'd look at it. I'd say, there's no way I'm green lighting. He would say, why? I'd have to answer that question. He yeah. wouldn't accept the answer. Yeah. And we would wrestle with each other as to the what's and why's of how the business worked and how creative worked. And over about a six month period of time, I was unknowingly starting to understand how to value creative in the business. And he was unknowingly starting to have to value the business side of what made his creative world tick. Yeah. And it's not like I became an expert in his side and he became an expert in my side, but we learned how to value what each other did and how to work together. 
And as soon as it clicked, it really started to roll because the market was super frothy. Uh-huh. And so we quickly... What, what year was this? Probably 2002. Okay, got it. 2002. And we did a couple of things really quickly. We started a joint venture with a writer-director named Sam Raimi to make horror movies. He was six weeks away from opening, at that time, the first Spider-Man movie, which on the weekend it opened was the highest grossing film of all time ever at that on a, on a weekend at the time, did $160 million or something in a weekend. Wow numbers nobody would ever seen before. And we thought he was going to disappear, but he didn't. And he showed up and we started making literally two movies a year that were wildly profitable and wildly successful at the box office um, pretty quickly at the same time. So we had one side of our business that was this horror business called Ghost House Pictures. <laughs> Another side of the business that was just quality movies and Nathan who really does understand the creative side of our business was out there trying to beat people to the punch to scripts. And we ended up with content like Juno and Stranger Than Fiction and some that didn't work. I just, it's always easier to tell you about the big names that did work, right? But there were plenty that didn't. 51% success, that's what you need. (laughs) That's what you need. But what started to happen was sort of the manifestation of that sort of business and creative thing coming together, meaning... We were making these horror movies, and I'm proud of the horror movies, but some of them weren't great, but they were economically really profitable for us, which allowed us to do a lot more and to grow our business fast. Yep. We were, and yet we were also doing movies like Juno and Stranger Than Fiction that did well for us financially, but were also highly regarded creatively in the community. Yeah. And so I started to understand, and we started to see the benefit of creators super high quality, talented people who valued sometimes even creative over the business wanting to come work with us. And that's when the business really started to cook. And so how hands-on were you with those films? You know, I understand you were the business side of things, but were you on set every day? Were you like, no. oh, yeah, I didn't think so, but. I've probably been on set in my 30 plus year career, maybe 30 days. Wow. Okay. I have very, you know, they, I, I add no value on a set. Right. Yeah, right. I may green light the movie and I do stop by because they, you know, I want to meet, see the director and everybody and, and let them know how much we care about the movie and like, but I can add no value on a set. Yeah. And so, no, I wasn't that involved. And, And the truth of the matter is even Nathan, he spent a lot more time on set and his team spent more time on set than I did. But when we do our best work, we've got producers that we've, that we've hired and empowered to let run their movies. If we're, if we're heavily involved on set, something's probably wrong. We're trying to fix it. And usually if we're on set, we're not actually going to make it a lot better. Fair. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, the game is won and lost when you green light the script and you hire the director and you have the right producer in place and you can support them. Yeah, makes sense. Damage control. We rarely turn the ship around in a meaningful way. Got it. So I wasn't that involved. I was very involved in green lighting the movie. I did green light the movies and I we would... I'd ultimately have to approve the casts and and the like, but that was really Nathan and his team's job to bring all those pieces together. Got it. And so how long did you guys end up doing this together? How? So we, um, we built that company from 2001 to 2007. Okay. You know, we didn't bring any capital into the company. Mm-hmm. And so we were literally bootstrapping it all the way. And we were doing 
any, you know, when we started probably 60, $70 million of production a year at the hot, you know, by 2005, we were probably doing a hundred and a quarter to $175 million of the production a year. And rarely did we have $150,000 in the bank. Yeah. And so we were, but it was stressful at times. Huh? It was so, yeah, it was so frothy in those days that we would, we were able to, I think we were one of the best companies in the business at understanding demand at building content without sacrificing the creative aspirations of the project at a, at a really economic price mm-hmm. and aligning ourselves with talent to share the ups and downs of that opportunity, which was unlike the way the studios tended to operate. And then monetizing the movies, we were really, really, really good at it. We were creating leverage in the marketplace. Others in the, most everybody else in the business were asking permission at the script stage to greenlight a movie. We would just greenlight and go. So we were way further down the track when you yeah. bring something to market. And if you got it right, the demand way outstripped what it cost you to make, right? So we were licensing the movies on very unique deals, taking over sales, taking our back ends, banking them, leveraging them, just kept turning it and turning it and turning it to keep growing the business. Were you ever, I mean, I'm sure it came up in thought, but were you ever actually worried about getting caught, so to speak? Because when you're- Oh, kinda- look, we were, you know- on a 12-hour podcast, I'll tell you the seven times we were three days away from being sunk. Like it yeah. was, it was one of the great, exciting, crazy entrepreneurial experience of a lifetime. We were always, we were always essentially bankrupt and yet yeah. super profitable. Yeah. Like there was a, there was a ton of value in the assets, but just keeping the cash wheel running yeah. was a monumental exercise. Our parent company went bankrupt four years in. Oh, wow. And tried to and would have drug us down, except for the way our deal was structured with them and the way the German laws and the American laws worked. So in 2004 or five, we spent a year negotiating to buy the majority shares that they held back uh-huh. and keep running. So it was a it was a very, very, very crazy dance. Yeah. But it was a company where there were a lot of real assets in it. We'd grown some real assets and just had to stay ahead of the, you know, just stay ahead of the cash flow. <laughs> so in 2000, late 2006, actually, what we we came to the conclusion, because having built it literally from the first brick, yeah, we had really intimate knowledge of how, what it took to source a piece of material, develop it, green light it, turn it into cash, all the ones that failed, all the ones that didn't. You had, it was, it was a reasonably predictable business going forward in the sense that how much you'd have to invest and whether you were actually growing the value of the company or, or you were in service of your customers and your, and your employees, right? And so by 2006, it was really clear that we either needed to bring in capital, just not to be in that situation forever, right? Yep. We either need to bring in capital, sell or shrink. We had no interest in shrinking we looked at the capital trade and there was just never a good trade. So we decided it was time to sell the business mm-hmm. and sat around and talked about what we wanted life after sale to be as opposed to what the price was because we were really good at, at doing deals. And so we felt we'd get the deal we wanted. So we wanted to kind of think about what life after the deal would be. And in early 2007, we decided to start chatting with potential buyers for the company. Got it. and. How was that process? Was it exciting, fun? (laughs) Look, the whole thing was exciting and fun because it's a very strange thing once you sell a company and you have 
a little bit of success and there's like this, there's this value sitting over in a bank account and there's this, and you, and I think initially you try to protect that. And so you come fundamentally change operating the way that you operated to get there, which is a mistake. Yeah. I say that because up until selling the company, we were always just building. We never thought about yeah. having anything, right? We were just going and going and going and going and doing the next thing and creating value. And um, But none of us had anything. We had some draws. We had a draw on the company, out of the company that basically paid our overhead. Nobody was yeah. stocking away dough. Yeah. And so there never occurred to us that there was something to protect, if that makes sense. And I was so- gonna ask, Was there a point where you realized you were going to- have more money than you need, so to speak. Was it this point or was it, did you already know you were successful and you were already living great and this was just going to be added to that? Like, was that? Oh, no, we were. I mean, we were successful in that there weren't many companies that had the ability to actually decide they were going to buy a piece of material and greenlight a movie. Yeah. There were major studios and a small group of producers that could do that. And we had become one of those and were really successful and good at it. Yeah. And so- that was success in our business. And underneath that, we knew there was value in that thing, but it wasn't kicking off a bunch of cash for us to go build fancy lives with. Right. And yet we felt successful. It's okay. just that we had to make a decision on how to what what to do at some point because it could become unsuccessful if we kept playing right. Russian, you know, kept playing roulette, right? Yeah. Like we had a great business, but any miss in execution could have been catastrophic at some point. Right. And well, you're so, just rolling it and rolling it and rolling it. Right. And so, you know, when we sold the company, it was clear that everybody was going to do really well. Uh-huh. And, that was, and we were confident in our ability to sell the company. And we, but we decided, we actually did it ourselves. We didn't bring an investment bank or anybody. Uh-huh. We started talking to the obvious parties at the time. There were a bunch of funds in the marketplace that were looking to buy businesses. There were a couple of companies we do business with today as Lionsgate that were looking to buy. And then there was Lionsgate. And as we started going through the process and we had a really good sense of what the value of the business was, and we were pretty good deal makers, we ended up in a situation where we had three buyers for the business that kind of were at the short list at the end of the day. And we got down the road with a couple of them pretty far down the road. And then there was a decision to be made. And we went back to that list of what do we want life after sale to look like because the money was enough. It yeah. was a good deal either way. And oddly, even though we had just, I just left there, Lionsgate was the right place to go. And what was that list? What were kind of your priorities? It was more about, it was more about what controls you would have going forward, what your work life looked like going forward, the platform and what the capability of that platform would be to enhance the business that you had built, mm-hmm. you know, in the calculus was, there was a big fund that wanted to buy us that was basically capital yeah. that would want to squeeze overhead all the time yeah. that wants a return. And that's totally fair. Couldn't really provide any strategic value for us. We weren't providing a platform that was going to grow the business. It would just be money in the business and probably another exit down the road. Yeah. There was an independent company that still exists today that's very successful that saw us as somebody, we were sort of in the same arbitrage space that, you know, thought one plus one could be three, really liked those guys a lot. And then there was Lionsgate, which had this theatrical platform. I would go in and run that theatrical platform. It would still be a place where we could continue to run the arbitrage business as well as supply content to Lionsgate. There was a, there were interesting places for each one of my partners within Lionsgate. And that stacked up with uh, with the kinds of things that we were looking for 
Got it. And so you go back to Lionsgate, take over theatrical. Was it what you had left or had things changed? How did it feel? Things changed a lot. They were a much bigger company. There was a lot more at stake. Mm-hmm. Much bigger company in terms of personnel, in terms of aspiration, the size of movies, what they'd been doing in the marketplace. It had grown a lot. Yep. And I took over the motion picture business and and really set about, one, trying to understand the, the public the nature of being a public, the, the nature of that job in a public company, motion pictures on an individual basis are really bumpy. Yeah. A slate, a slate is less bumpy. How that's perceived by Wall Street, how the partners in the business think about that, how that affects decision making, the financial implications of dating movies on a given date and the expense, how expenses are incurred and how that is perceived. And all, all there's a whole bunch of stuff that is way outside of, is this a great movie that's going to make us a lot of money and this is the right date to release it? And at the same time, wanted to take advantage of that platform and felt that there was an opportunity to go find the next iteration of franchises that could have, you know, a game-changing value effect on Lionsgate. I'm curious, you know, as you've said a few times, like you're a man of curiosity, was there something fun also about those sort of dynamics of public or was that just kind of annoying like learning the public traded um, ultimately yes i have to say that i did not do i i didn't properly value what liquidity and what opportunity a public company operating in the public space can offer you and was frankly offering lionsgate and me and my position there and instead i rebelled against it for the first two and a half years and wanted to ignore it and not want to properly value it mm-hmm. because often it wasn't perfectly al- the pressures of that or the mm-hmm. the implication of that wasn't always perfectly aligned with a movie you'd want to green light or when you'd want to date it or the, the right yeah. thing for an individual film, right? And, and it took me, it took my stubborn brain probably two years to step back and go, wait a minute, I'm creating value over here with my team, or my team is creating value identifying and making this thing, this these movies, and monetizing them in certain ways. This public market mechanism is actually providing the liquidity and creating its own value in terms of every day, deciding what the all these assets together were worth. And they both are important. Yeah. And I came into the company was like, this is important and that sucks, right? And that's stupid, right? That's just not right. And so I would say in the last couple of years of that deal, I did get curious about it. I did try to understand it. I did try to figure out how to optimize what we were doing within it mm-hmm. as opposed to rebel against it <laughs> and see if we could make one plus one equals three. Kind yep. of so at first I wasn't, but I did become curious about it. Got it. And so, as you said, towards the last couple of years of your deal, did you see your deal through and then bow out? What ended up happening? I saw my deal through. We had had a business plan to find the next sort of uh, wave of franchises for the company and sort of take and take it to the next level. How we had defined that in a very specific way at the time. And um, two things happened simultaneously. The true manifestation of that idea and business plan came to bear at the same time that they were buying a company called Summit Entertainment. Mm-hmm. that had two very senior executives that were also going to sit at the top of this company. So what actually happened in that situation is my deal was coming to an end as we launched the Hunger Games franchise, which ultimately added billions of dollars of value to Lionsgate. And that was your project, right? That was like the, what was you were- my team's for. project. I mean, it yeah. came yeah. in under my, we had put this strategy in place to go and to sort of our, to go after, develop and put into the lineup potential game changer franchises. 
There were a bunch that we put in. That was the one. We also did Conan the Barbarian thinking it was going to do that. And we lost a lot of money on it. Like, it's not like I knew that was the one, but it was yeah. part of a strategy yeah. that if, you, if you're doing that within us, within Slate Dynamics, you're going to get, right? And was Nate still with you? Was he still doing the creative side? Yep. Nice. Yep. But he was not running the movie creative. He was actually running our old company within Lionsgate. Got it. <laughs> there was a different group of folks that were running the movie, but that were, that were doing that. A woman named Ali Shermer was the executive on that movie. Awesome. And um, so we built that, we launched that franchise. The last thing I did at the company was to announce that movie at the premiere. Mm-hmm. And then I finished my, that was, that was the last official. And that turned out to be a great way to leave the company. And two executives, Rob Friedman and Patrick Waxberger from Summit took over the motion picture business at that point. Got it. And Um, did you have an idea of what you wanted to do? Or you're just like, this has been great. I'm out. I did actually. I went and decided to do this all over again. And so why not? (laughs) There was still an opportunity in the marketplace to do what we were doing before arbitrage, a little bit different space. The idea was to do comedies and some other things where there was sort of, there was more demand in the market and have a foreign sales company. All the things that we had done the first time with a little bit different dynamics. My partner, Nathan, his deal terminated, ended at the same time. We decided to reconstitute. Uh, A number of folks that were at the original company got back together and we actually were able, Lionsgate was a great partner. We'd all done really well by each other. And so there were a bunch of unproduced assets in that company in the old and from old Senator. Then when we sold it, it was called Mandate Pictures. We had had to rename it when we bought out the, the German shares. Yeah, There were a bunch of unproduced assets. And so we cut a deal with Lionsgate to share those assets as a way to kind of start that company. Nice. And then went off and built this company called Good Universe. Mm-hmm. We did a bunch, we did a lot of comedies with Seth Rogen and his partners and Evan Goldberg and James Weaver, things mm-hmm. like Neighbors and yep. a bunch this of that. The end was under you guys too, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. And so we started that company, Good Universe, and went off and in with slightly different skews in various things, we did essentially built a similar company to the one we did the first time yeah. um, and had a bunch of success doing that. Got it. And were, it's that, was your focus really, you, you, you coined the audience. I remember you saying, you know, guys like you, like the eternally adolescent, I think was the word you used, which I appreciated as someone that watched a lot of those movies, but it was the, you know, the Seth Rogen comedies that were a lot of it. Was that a big piece of it? Or is that just one small aspect? Oh, uh, no, it was a big piece of it. We also did, you know, we knew the horror space really well. We, yeah. we did this movie with Fede Alvarez called Don't Breathe, which is really successful. So we were, we were doing all kinds of movies, but I would say the biggest piece of our business was in the comedy space. And what, what I would say to the key to our business was though, was like, I'm not dreaming up comedies. I'm yeah. not coining adolescence. Like we're finding the best of the best. Yeah. And trying to figure out how we can create an opportunity that aligns our interests with theirs, that excites them versus them just doing traditional studio business and going and having a first look deal with a studio. Yeah. And we were able to connect with Seth and his and his team and and do that and uh, with Fed and some others. And we're able to build this another business that was able to develop independently, greenlight its movies independently and then go access studio and global independent distribution in a different way to extract more value for all of us and retain a lot more creative freedom and retain a lot more rights that would have value down the road and just went back to being an independent entrepreneur and having a lot of fun. 
And that's when we met. And, it, and then it, there was a few year gap in there that it sounds like some things happened throughout that, that you decided to do it for a little while and then go back as well. So I'd love to hear like, what was that process? <laughs> well, yeah. So I, uh, in 2017, the market was shifting. We were really, really successful again, but our perception, this was when streaming was just coming online. Netflix was just really coming online. There was no big Apple. There was no, you know, there were none of these other, there was no Disney plus, there was none of that competition. Studios were shifting their appetites, but that arbitrage started to look narrow. It started to look narrower. We perceived value in platform, meaning we were a content creator, but we didn't have a platform to go and monetize. And we, mm-hmm. and I thought there was real value in a, in a platform that had access to the theatrical market at a premium level, but also wasn't wed to it, could do any kind of business that it wanted to. And Lionsgate was sort of the perfect example of that. Yep. And so, and, and they were, I think at the time, looking for some management help in the motion picture group. I think they wanted to kind of revisit how they wanted that business to run. Mm-hmm. And so in 2017, we started talking and I think it was just a perfect time for that company, Good Universe, to, we built uh, another valuable asset that I think was valuable in the market. And at the same time, Nathan and myself felt that we would be able to accomplish more and have a bigger impact in the business aligned with a platform that had, that, that controlled distribution in a bunch of media. Makes sense. And, and so yeah, we w- jump back in. One thing I love about this is, I mean, you've been there three times. You obviously don't burn bridges on your way out. You no. sounds like you've kept all your relationships, including your business partner that, you know, as you said, some people would have viewed your first six months as war. And you guys continued to, you, you literally went back in the trenches together. Like it's hard. A lot of people that haven't been through it. Once you've built something, you've had some success, you have money in the bank. It's hard to roll up your sleeves and want to do it all over again. So you guys had that commitment to it. <laughs> It is. It's yeah. It. I would say it's hard, but I would say that, you know, I'd go back to Ken Badish, um, my first boss. One of the things that he was he was a great negotiator, but he didn't look at negotiating as just getting more from the other guy, and you know, and being a tough guy extracting the last dollar. He had trouble closing. I think you got to know when to close. I think that was his one Achilles heel. But other than knowing when to close, he was really about understanding all of the parties and what their interests were and finding that place that maximized the value on our side within the context of good business for everybody. Yeah. Right. And pushing hard. But you really have to understand all the parties in a transaction and their business, which is why you know, literally understanding what every video unit costs and what every movie ticket costs and how much media they spend against it. And being, you know, if you literally went through the ins and outs of every territory's business, so that when you're trying to do business, when you're trying to sell them something or license them a title, you're running their math and you're understanding their problems. Yep. You're going to find, and if you are able to take the emotion out of the moments, yeah. And help people de-escalate escalated situations and talk about what's actually in, what's really important. Yeah. You're going to be able to create real longevity in your business relationships. You're going to help yourself and people na- navigate some tense situations. Like I'm not going to pretend that I haven't been in thousands of 
negotiations and deals that at a moment get really hot and get people feel they take things personally when it's about a piece of content or it's about a distribution yeah. window, right? But it just gets that way because people get vested yep. in business and trying to win. But I've always tried to, and I've made mistakes like anybody, but I've always tried to really understand all the parties in a transaction and what they're trying to get. I try to be as transparent as is humanly possible, treat everybody with respect, yep. tell the truth. Yep. Even it's hard, even when you got bad news, <laughs> just go tell the truth. And I have found that you can build some really long lasting relationships in business. And often I find actually the deepest relationships you have are the ones where you've been through a really tough moment together, where you've been maybe on the opposite side of things and, and you felt really mad, you felt really unhappy about that person. But when you, but when you got to the bottom of it and you got through it, it builds a lot of long-term trust. Yep. Agreed. So two ask questions for you. First off, what's next? I'm pretty, I'm pretty excited about what we're doing right now. We've, yeah. We are in, I'm not saying anything anybody doesn't know, like there is more change going on in the world and particularly yeah. in the motion picture business where everything that existed as a standard, windows, what something was valued at, are people going to theaters, are they not? What are they, what are they going to go see? What are they not? What is, gonna, what is the theatrical infrastructure going to look like in two years? Streamers gobbling up the world. Consumer yeah. taste who have unlimited options for entertainment, right? We're literally in the most dynamic market I've ever been in. Lionsgate sits in a really unique position. We've been through an extraordinary evolution that has tested all of us. We've done a bunch of stuff really well. And at the same time, it's just beginning. Yeah. And so I'm not done. Yeah. Um, the team's not done. And so I want to make sure that we navigate this moment and come out of it as a, as a motion picture group that doesn't just survive the moment, but thrives coming out of it. And that means we have to operate in whatever environment we find ourselves in, yep. not set ourselves up to just be a theatrical distributor. Yep. And there's a bunch of unanswered questions that we got to go answer to do that. You know, it's, it, I love that you said that because I've noticed one of the biggest things I've learned throughout the past couple of years, this crazy pandemic and everything is, the difference between the CEOs and founders that, again, look to survive versus look to thrive. And that difference in mindset actually causes that outcome. Like I've seen people that I, I've mentioned this a lot in different interviews and stuff, but a friend of mine owned a chain of gyms in Canada that I don't think are still open. I think they've still been shut down for 16 months or whatever it's been. And so we pivoted to virtual training, like three days into it, built a platform, launched it, made an eight figure business within the past year. And then when the gyms reopen, he'll still have that too. Right. And it's just, if you lean into it and find opportunity, it can be very beneficial and for anyone. Yeah. What I say is I, I've always felt like I knew in all the previous iterations of what I've done, like kind of what the North star was, what we were, what the business case we were chasing. Yeah. And I had to get really comfortable 12 months ago with, I don't know what that is. Yeah. I need to create an, I need to create an organization that's capable of not knowing yeah. and, and chasing all the possibilities. Yep. And uh, it's been really interesting. Yeah, it can be exciting. All right. So last question, which you've answered a few times in different ways, but I'm going to see if you have one up your sleeve still. For people just getting started, whatever that passion or career might be, what's your one piece of advice that you don't think they commonly hear that you either did get the advice or wish you had been told this advice? 
God, I don't have the, I don't have the magic answer that people haven't already heard. I would say this, leave early. I think there's this sense of loyalty that people have where they stick around in things they're really not passionate about. It doesn't mean you leave anybody hanging. Yeah. But in your early career, your job is to find that place that you're so damn curious, you're just going. Yeah. And and if you're not there, you need to move. You need to take care of the person that hired you in the first place. You need to do it right, but you need to move. Yeah. You need to not stick around. The yeah. opportunity in this world is extraordinary. And so many people, I would say the large majority of people get what they're off, take what they're offered and struggle through it because they want to be a good employee yeah. and haven't really chased that thing that makes them excited. And you'll know when you found it. Yeah. And if you don't know, you need to be, you need to find the energy to get up and move and try something else, anything else. It doesn't matter. I just wanted to get out of Orange County. I didn't want to be in the movie business. <laughs> and the truth is, had it sucked, I would have tried something else. Yeah. That's my nature. Yep. I, I probably am a little anomalous to most people because for whatever reason, I run towards change. And that's not a normal thing. But early in your early in your work life, you, you have to find a way to embrace that. If yeah. you're going to find a thing that you're going to be out working everybody in, because it's not really work. Yep. You're doing, totally. thing, you're doing the thing that you dig. So I don't know if that's a pearl of wisdom, but I would just say leave early. I think it is. Well, Joe, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for coming on Hawk Talk. Great seeing you, Eric. You too. Take care of yourself. Hawk Media is your outsourced CMO and marketing team. We'll dive into your business for free, identify opportunities in your marketing strategy, then get you teamed up with individual experts, all month to month and a la carte. Whether you're looking for a Facebook advertiser, a web designer, or a fractional CMO, we can help you drive growth for your business. We've successfully grown over 2,500 brands, and we're here to help you too. No matter your goal, we've got you covered. To learn more, visit hawkmedia.com. That's hawk with an E, media.com. You've been listening to Hawk Talk. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you're listening in Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to give us a quick rating for the show. Just tap the number of stars you think this podcast deserves. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.